Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. And for those joining us via internet, glad to have you with us as well. Uh, my apologies. I was making uh, future title slides for sermons for YouTube, and I did not tell Alexis that's not her fault, but it's my fault. I didn't inform her. So this morning's sermon is why some, why some Cannot Sing, Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, which is different, which is on your bulletin. But we make mistakes. There you go. So let's move on. Uh, one a qualifier I will tell you, I always try to be very careful with the time, but as this sermon goes on, the way God has directed me, I may slow down quite a bit. I need to slow down anyway because I have a tendency to talk too fast. But with some of the subject matter, I want to make sure that I talk very well so you can understand completely what it is I'm trying to communicate to you. Of course, our text is Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, why some cannot sing. Alongside every group that gathers to sing, there are some who don't want to sing or do not sing or cannot sing. No matter how professional, no matter how disciplined they may be. For example, the Star-Spangled Banner, which is played at every sporting event before the game begins. Some people do not sing. They think it's just for the performer who's leading us. But yes, you are to participate. So as you look around the stadium or the ballpark, whatever sporting event you're at, you'll see some people mumbling the words because perhaps they've forgotten the words to the national anthem. Of course, none of you have done that, have you? Okay, moving right along. Some have removed their caps in honor of it, and they place it over their heart, and they close their eyes. Though they're not praying, perhaps they're actually catching a nap real quick before the game begins, and then they wake up when the song's over. And by the way, did you know the last line of the national anthem is not the land of the free and home of the brave. The last line in the national anthem is, play ball! Did you know that? That's when everybody wakes up. Oh, okay, the game's beginning. But the point is, there are some who are singing the anthem, some who are not, and some who cannot sing. Uh, perhaps the octave is a, a step and a half higher than what they're used to. Or perhaps they're not singing because they're not American citizens and the song does not relate to them. They don't know what it means to be an American citizen as of yet, so they don't feel like they can sing the song. Well, our text this morning mentions a song being sung by 144,000, and this group was introduced back in chapter 7. Now, in verse 3 of our text, it says, They sang a new song before the throne. No one could learn the song except the 144,000. So we're going to look at this verse in context, kind of walk through, and then, by doing that, we'll be able to answer the question, why some cannot sing. Look at verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion appears to be a pre-Israelite, Canaanite name for the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. Biblical uses of Mount Zion often means the city rather than the hill itself. The name Zion is often used to describe a place appointed by the Lord where his followers can live and serve him. 
often referred to as the city of holiness or the city of refuge, where the Lord protects His people from the evil in the world. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In our context, I want you to know that Mount Zion has more to do with identity than permanent residence. So he's standing there on Mount Zion, the Lamb. Look back in verse 1. And with him, 144,000. Now back in chapter 7, we found out these 144,000 are made up of 12,000 people, each from the 12 tribes of Israel. And in chapter 7, they're described as receiving the marks or the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, normally a mark is a sign of ownership, generally an indication of protection. Some cases it may uh, seal somebody for future judgment, but surely in this case, it's a protection. It's a seal of protection. And look back in verse 1, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. This is an indication that God is chosen these for a particular task. These 144,000 are sealed Jewish believers that have survived the tribulation. They have triumphed over all its turmoil and persecution. And remember, before this happens, back in verse 13, we saw the dragon, the beast from the sea, and then the beast from the earth, also referred to as a false prophet. And then as he sees that, John tells us, then I looked and he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion with these 144,000. Now look at verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, or rushing waters, or cascading waters, like the sound of loud thunder, rumbling thunder, or a peal of thunder. John hears a voice that sounds like that. These cascading waters in this loud rumble of thunder. Grasping for words, he's trying to describe to us what this sounded like in the midst of all this happening. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a waterfall and you hear the washing, the rushing waters fall. I've been to Niagara Falls. What a loud noise that is. Now throw on top of that thunder, a peal of thunder. We just had a thunderstorm come through here last Wednesday night. Remember that? Am I, okay, you guys with me? Okay. You hear that thunder just kind of rumble through the, through the sky. And in the midst of all this, he hears something that sounds like a harp. Look back in the verse. The voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now think about this for a second. When we normally hear a harp play under normal circumstances, maybe one, maybe two harps, but they're always accompanied by an orchestra. I have never been to a concert with nothing but harps being played. But in this case, not only are they being played, but they have this water, this rushing water and this peal of thunder as well. Kind of serves as a contrast, the soothing music of the harps versus the waters and the thunder. Now, this water, cascading waters, the lightning, 
and the thunder are often used to declare the glory of God, to depict His presence and strike fear in the heart of people. Remember in uh, Mount Sinai when the people came out of Egypt and God descended down that mountain and it quaked and it shook and thundered. What did they do? They were frightened. And they moved away and they bowed down. Even the creatures in heaven see and hear these elements as causes for worship. While those who rebel against God on earth understand that the one, the very one who creates his magnificent, magnificent wonders, natural wonders, may also use them to announce his divine displeasure. But what about harps? Well, a harp is a well-known instrument used in the service of God. It accompanies songs of praise and thanksgiving to our Lord. You see back in Psalms, David playing the harp. In fact, we see cartoons, and they're not exactly right when I say this, but you ever seen the cartoon when the cartoon character dies, and they're going up to heaven, what are they playing? A harp. Well, back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, we see someone playing some harps. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, when he had taken the book, the Lamb, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. They each had a harp and they were playing to God. So the harp is used in worship. It's used to serve God and to praise Him. John is being prepared for the twin messages of providence and justice. God's judgment, judgment and justice can be overwhelming, can strike fear in us. By the way, when this time comes, it's called the, the terrible day of the Lord because even as us believers will see God as he truly is, to see the Lamb as he truly is, it's going to be somewhat fearful to see him in that way. But on the other hand, his provinces and justice are like soothing and comforting tones of the harp. Because as believers, we know that God is going to settle the score, as they say. That he is going to bring judgment upon those who broke his commandments. That he will set the record straight. Like what Jesus told Pilate when Pilate said, don't you know I have the authority to release you or condemn you to death? And Jesus responded, the only authority you have is given from above. See, Jesus knew, trust the Father, the Father's will will be done, and in the end, he will be highly exalted. His name will be above every other name, the only name which men can be saved. We know, if we're truthful to God and we are obedient to his commands, that one day we will be with them in heaven, that this is not all there is. This is not the end. This is simply the beginning. Death, and as bad and as tragic as it can be to us here on earth, it's simply the stepping over into eternity. As bad as it was to lose my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my stepfather, and my mother, I know that what's in the ground is simply their body. They're not here. They've gone on, along with all of our loved ones. And trust me, I believe with all my heart they will never want to come back here. It's just simply stepping over into eternity. Now look at verse 3. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, 
and the elders, and no one can learn the song except for the hundred and forty-four thousand. This song is unique to them. No one else can learn or is able to learn the song. Now, this is not a limitation of ability, but rather, a, but rather, of appropriateness. Only they can correctly employ the lyrics of this beautiful song. Only they, and they're what they have done, can appropriately sing this song. It is only for them. No one else can learn it. Look what it says about them. I know the description in verse 3. Who have been purchased or redeemed from the earth. Now back in chapter 7, I know it's been quite some time ago we went through chapter 7. But I believe I made the remark, they, these 144,000 are not angels because in that context, they're referred to as Jews. In this context, they're referred to as people who have been redeemed. So these are actually people. These are men we're talking about. They're not some type of angelic beings. These are real people, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we're starting to get some little deep territory here, so bear with me. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. Now, some people have a real problem with this because they say, well, this kind of casts uh, cast marriage into a, a bad light. I would argue otherwise. Uh, for example, consider the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is, is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, these were not married, but they didn't go around sleeping around as single people. Sex belongs in the marriage covenant. That's what the text is pointing out. We'll say more about that in a moment. This judgment about the marriage being undefiled is sustained by the entire witness of Scripture. Adam and Eve were created for a purpose. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do? To multiply and fill the earth. So God's purpose can never be construed as wrong. God created Adam and Eve. He instituted marriage between one man and one woman. One aspect of it is that's the... What's the word I'm looking for? It's the most intimate way two human beings can share love. It's physical, it's spiritual, and emotional. You procreate also in that covenant. That's why God will say that he hates divorce. He doesn't say he hates divorced people, but he hates divorce. Why? Because when you open yourself up like that to somebody else, something so personal, something so intimate, and that person, after doing that with you, looks at you and says, I don't love you anymore. I'm out of here. It hurts like no other. It's rejection on the most deepest level. God does not want that to happen to you. That's the reason why in the book of Malachi, it says God hates divorce. He hates the pain that it causes. It also disrupts the picture of the church and Jesus and the husband and wife becoming one church and Jesus, that same analogy that is used. I don't have enough time to chase that rabbit fully. Table talk's coming up, so write that one down. We'll talk about it more. Look back in verse 4. 
For they have kept themselves chaste, or some translations pure, or kept their virginity. Now the Greek word translated chaste is parthenios. And it's translated virgins in New King James and the NIV. Now that word also refers to a mature young woman who has not been intimately involved with a man. However, it can be expanded to include men. This is where I come to these 144,000 were celibate. They had abstained from marriage. Which Paul talks, by the way, is a gift. Not only can do it, but it is a gift of God for someone to abstain from marriage. There's nothing against marriage. Some people can do that. Some people are married. But let me just chase this just a little more, can I? Intimacy, intimacy, sex, sexual relationship with a man and woman, that is a gift from God inside the covenant of marriage. The best way I can illustrate that, how many of you have fireplaces or wood stove in your house? You put the fire in there when it's cold, and you warm it up. It's beautiful to look at. It keeps you warm. Tell my wife, hey, go get a blanket. Let's snuggle on the couch. Very inviting, very warm. Sometimes romance can happen there, but I'm just painting that beautiful picture. But if you take that fire out of that fireplace and put it in the living room, bedroom, what's going to happen? The house is going to burn. It's going to cause destruction. This like having sexual intimacy outside the marriage covenant can lead to your destruction. It can tear you up. And God is telling us, do it within the institute what I, what I created it for. So rather than constituting a negative pronouncement about marriage that some say this text does, to the degree they kept themselves holy before God is underscored. They upheld marriage because, look, we think of marriage so well that I'm not going around with every woman I see, but I'm going to not have it. If God gives me a wife, then so be it. We'll do it within the marriage code, but if not, I'm going to sustain from it. And boy, we can spend a lot of time going down that road. But I want you to see that in this text. Look back in verse 4. Not only have they kept themselves chaste or pure, they are the ones who follow the land wherever he goes. This really talks about the character of these 144,000. Wherever they need to do, they were obedient at every point. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ. And that means one who's been redeemed and regenerate, a new creation. But to become a Christian is also a commitment to follow Christ. In other words, when you come and you place your faith in Christ, you repent and confess of your sins, in that moment, you are now justified in the eyes of God through the blood of Christ. And then you come in obedience and baptism. And that's a public confession of your faith in Christ. As you go down in the water, you're dying to yourself. You're telling the world, I'm dying to myself and I'm raised up by the power of his resurrection and now I belong to him. That's not the end of the journey. That's only the beginning. You are committing your life to following Christ wherever he may lead you to go and to do. And this is what these have done. It says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It goes on further to say these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. 
This seven-year tribulation is followed by a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Together they constitute the end times. And during the millennial reign, the earth is repopulated after the tribulation. A lot of death going on, a lot of destruction during the tribulation. But many more will come to faith in Christ in the millennial reign. So they are the first fruits of what's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. That's the reason they're called first fruits. And look at verse 5. No lie or deceit was found in their mouth. They're blameless. Now wrap your minds around this. They are without fault before the throne. And remember, they're before the throne. Even though they're on Mount Zion, the throne, the four living creatures and the elders are mentioned. Apparently they can see them, they can hear them. And it's telling us that they are without fault before the throne, God's presence. They have nothing to hide. They were who they were. And quite interesting enough, the New Testament uses that Greek word translated, no lie, no deceit, or without fault. Talk about the sacrificial animals that were offered up in sacrifice. It had to be an animal without defect, without fault. Now, imagine that. They're in God's presence, and the text tells us there was no deceit, no law. In fact, they are blameless. It Please hear me very carefully. If you are a believer in Christ and you have committed yourself to following him, your disciple of Christ, one day, because of his shed blood, nothing you could ever do, but because of his blood that's taken your sin away, you can stand before God without blame and without blemish. Can you imagine looking at the Lamb, the very one who took the nails for you in the eyes, seeing his nail-scarred hands and his feet and his side where the spirit went up? Can you imagine what that's going to be like to see God in all his glory seated on the throne? To see of all the saints we've studied and talked about. To see your loved ones. Woo, what a great reunion that's going to be. No more death, no more crying, no goodbyes. No more sin. I have no idea what that looks like. But brother, I'm so ready to be there. So let's go for a circle. Why are some reasons some cannot sing now? Qualifier, I'm not talking about you singing a song of the 144,000. That's for them, only for them, okay? That's in the context of the verses that we looked at. What I'm talking about, let's look at some principles and talk about why some of us cannot sing in worship or what hinders us singing. Well, let's go back in verse 4. The new song is being sung by those who have not defiled themselves. Sexual sin is serious. Sexual misbehavior is nothing nothing to be winked at. Sex within marriages are a wonderful gift to experience love and intimacy with another human being, a way you can procreate life. But it can also be one of our greatest catastrophes 
and also a source of deep shame. To hide it and pretend it, sexual sin, by the way, the, uh, when it talks about sexual immorality in the New Testament, the Greek word is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. And it's not just adultery, it covers a whole realm of different things. But to hide it and pretend it's not there is to create depression. And it can reinforce unresolved guilt. If we have shame, until we deal with it, we cannot experience peace, we cannot know joy, therefore we cannot truly sing. Maybe some of us have some unconfessed sin, maybe some sexual misconduct that we've gone into. Perhaps we chose to go outside the marriage covenant, got involved in adultery and pornography. If you do that, you will be shackled and broken. Your song is lost because within you, you have secrets. But the desire of Christ is to forgive you and make you whole. How can I say that? Remember the incident of the woman caught in adultery? Moses, the law that Moses gave said, if you caught somebody like that, you are to stone them. I'm not talking about smoking marijuana. I'm talking about picking up rocks and throwing them at them until they're dead. And Jesus said, he without any sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their rocks and walked away. And Jesus says, where is those who condemn you? He says, I have none. And then John chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Don't waste another day wallowing in the muck and the mire of unresolved guilt. Confess it, let it go, pray it out, and you too will be able to sing with everything you got before the throne of God. By the way, that's what we're doing here. We're going into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, singing His praises, talking to Him, Him talking to us. Is it serious stuff? Yes, it is. But I'm telling you, the good news today is Now is the day of confession and repentance. He wants to forgive you. He desires to forgive you. But you need to confess it. Agree with him. And let the healing process begin. Why some cannot sing? We'll look back in verse 4. This new song is being sung by those who follow the land wherever he goes. They can sing with joy and with pride because they've done everything they were supposed to do. But what about those of us who can't be that obedient? We have never disciplined ourselves like that. What about those of us who have high ideals but never achieve them? We have strong expectations of ourselves, but we are our own disappointments, which can lead to depression. You know what you ought to do. You set out to do it. Kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul there, doesn't it? The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I should do, I don't do. So you, you set out to do it, but you never achieve it. You have a problem living with yourself. You just keep on building up frustration, and you're never truly satisfied or happy. Now, we should not take light sin. But the Lord knows your struggles. There's a difference in wrestling with something and trying to free yourself of it, going to God and confessing it, than continuing to do something over and over again saying, who cares, God will forgive me. 
May I exhort you to keep on working, but offer yourself some rest. Here's another thing. Some of us in this room need to forgive ourselves. We've sent God out so many times, but we haven't forgiven, forgiven ourselves. Let God be God. Take the hands off trying to be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. Some of you won't sing because you, you say, well, I can't sing. I'm not perfect. The Bible says make a joyful noise. He loves it when his redeemed people raise up their hearts and everything they have to him. <coughs> Excuse me. He will give you a song to sing. We read this in Bible school this morning, or Bible study. Philippians 1.6. For I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you were perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work in you the minute you gave your life to Christ. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. He wants to work in you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you into the image of his son. Oh. We are our biggest enemies sometimes. We get in the way of what God wants to do. And lastly, why some cannot sing this new song is being sung by those who do not lie. Verse 5. Now, this is pretty obvious. We shouldn't lie, shouldn't gossip, shouldn't fib. One of the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness. But let's take a different look at this, shall we? We know we we shouldn't lie. But with all that said, what lies have you brought into yourself? What what lies have you brought into that have been told to yourself? In other words, have you ever been told that you're just like your no good father? Or you're no good? I don't know why I should waste my time. Or been told that your mother doesn't really love you? All these lies that we hear. Have you bought into that? Are you telling yourself that you're not good enough? By the way, we can never be good enough. That's why we need a Savior. But if you believe that to the nth degree, you're excluding yourself from the hope that Jesus Christ gives us. How many times have I been doing uh, preaching at different churches? Someone would tell me, Tim, that's great, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. God will never forgive me. Oh, yes, He will. If you just let go of all those lies you've been hearing about yourself. And right now, I know it within my heart that the enemy is whispering a lie in your ear right now. Telling you not to believe the words coming out of my mouth. Look at the text. Search your heart. You know these things to be true. Don't you want to sing? Don't you want to sing praises of thanksgiving to our God? Lift up your weary heart and sing with everything you have and just let it go. (laughs) Come up and confess and repent and let it go. God, here it is. That may require to change some habits and behaviors that we have. It may require us to stay away from certain people, bad influences. But our biggest problem as Christians a lot of time, yeah, we pray about it, God, take this. But then we pick all that baggage up and walk right out the door with it. 
That's like telling God, well, we don't really believe you can do it, God. We got to do it ourselves. That's a lie. God can do it. God wants to do it, but you have to let him do it. You can sing. Yes, you can. You can sing. Let those who refuse to sing be those who never knew God. But you are children of the King. Lift up your voices and praise Him. Do you know the King? Have you given your life to Christ? Now is the time. Is there some unconfessed sin in your life? This guilt. And you're tired of walking around with it. You're tired of holding on to it. You're so frustrated. When are you going to let go of it and let God handle it? Hmm. Because I have found something true in my life. As a man, I thought I had to control everything, but I found out something so true. There is freedom in letting go. God, you got this. You created all this. You took care of all this. You got my eternity covered. I can trust you. Here it is. Or as the old country song says, Jesus, take the wheel. Our problem is, get us out of this horrible mess we're in, we kick him out of the driver's seat, we won't take over control, and then we hit another slick spot, or something else happens, we, hey, where'd you go? There's a song out, by, uh, it's been out for quite a while, by a gentleman named Brandon Lake. It's called Gratitude. I shared this with Roger some weeks ago, but Listen to these, these words. So come on, my soul. Oh, don't you get shy on me. Lift up your song, because you've got a, lying, a lion inside of those lungs. Get up and praise the Lord. And all I'm saying this morning is perhaps the reason why some of us don't sing, some of us cannot sing, is we've got unresolved issues in our life. This is where you deal with them. It's not a place where perfect people. None of us in here are perfect. We're all works in progress. We call this a sanctuary. Exactly what it is. A safe haven where you can come and let go and don't have to worry about what people are going to say or think about you. We're We're all sinners saved by grace. This is the place where you find forgiveness, you find healing, you find meaning, you find community, you find people who love you in spite of who you are because they love you like Jesus loves you. That's the whole point of being here. It doesn't matter what you look like, what clothes you wear, how much money you make, what kind of degree you have. You're all welcome here. Jesus said, come to me, all who are heavy laden, I shall give you rest. My burden is light. Some of us in this room and the sound of my voice are carrying around heavy bricks. And we keep struggling with it and we keep praying about it. We keep confessing it. But yet we keep picking up those load of bricks and trying to handle it ourselves. And Jesus is here. He's saying, won't you just give that to me? You don't have to come to Christ. You don't have to be cleaned up. Let him do that. He can do all that. 
He can restore relationships. He can heal you. He wants, that's the thing I want to drive home. He desires to do that. He wants to do that. And he gives us commands of what to do, what not to do. Why? Because he loves us. I'll end with this illustration. When my girls were really little, they liked to climb at open cabinets. How would you think of me as a dad if I saw one of my girls crawl up and Tammy had the oven on and they touched the, their, heart, their hand to the oven and they burned themselves, but I didn't say anything. Ah, they'll learn eventually. After half their arm gets burned off or something. No, as a parent, I won't even reason with the child after. No! Wow! I'm not doing that to be mean. I'm doing it because I love my child and I don't want to see my daughter hurt. God is the same way. He doesn't want you to see you hurt. Everything he does, even his discipline, as the book of Hebrews says, he's dealing with you as one of his own children. He cares enough about you to save you and to forgive you and not to leave you where he found you. He wants to take you to places and do things that you can't even possibly imagine right now. But it's your decision. It's totally up to you. Please don't let this opportunity pass you by. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, I thank you for your love and your peace forgiveness and your mercy. Father, I know you love each man, woman, boy, and girl within the sound of my voice so intimately and so deeply. I I can't even imagine how deep it goes. That you sent your son to pay the debt that had to be paid because you didn't want us to spend eternity in hell separated from you forever. You wanted us in heaven with you. And even now here on earth, you want us to give us a life, an abundant life here while we lived on earth. Father, bind the evil one away from here. He has no business here as he seeks to lie to each one of us. He's the father of lies. He wants to destroy us. Father, bind him away in the powerful name of Christ. May each of us listen to the voice of truth, your voice. And we follow it and be obedient to it. Father, knock down the walls, break every chain, do whatever is necessary. Your will be done. Your will be done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.